0: If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them?
1: Hello, General
0: Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome Welcome to the the Calling calling History history podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with the unsinkable Molly Brown, who, by the way, never went by Molly. No one called her Molly, except in 1933, when writer Gene Fowler, for some reason, just changed her name in his book, and then it stuck. Forever. Nonetheless, the rest of her nickname is absolutely correct. Margaret, or Mrs. J.J. Brown, as she was often called, was in fact unsinkable. Our discussion takes place on the 10th anniversary of her surviving the sinking of the Titanic. You would think that Margaret was done taking big passenger ships after that, but no way. As a self-proclaimed daughter of adventure, she had stuff to do. While traveling, she found herself once on a ship called the Lusitania that was sunk by German U-boats in World War I. Fortunately, she was not on the ship at that time when it sunk. But Margaret was much more than this one event that dominated the story of her life. She was rich, really rich, but she wasn't selfish. She used her wealth throughout her life to improve the lives of others while she was traveling the world in ships that would eventually sink, but enjoying every minute of being alive. Margaret helped miners in Colorado fight for fair pay and reasonable hours. She spoke several languages. She attempted to run for Senate before women were even able to vote nationally, and even helped the people of France recover after the tragedy of World War I. Yet, while serving those less fortunate, she never stopped pursuing her dream of being an actress. She was focused, living a rich life of experiences and service. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and traveling companions of John Jacob Astor Everywhere, I give you the unsinkable Molly, I mean Margaret Brown. Hello, is that you, Mrs. Brown? It is indeed. Mrs. Brown, it is a pleasure to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean. I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were arm's length from one another. It also allows me to share a record of our conversation with people around the world. And ma'am, it appears that either through divine intervention or incredible luck, that you survived the unimaginable 10 years ago. And I was just hoping that I could ask you some questions. But before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions you may have first?
1: I find it's an unusual piece of modern technology, I guess you would say. I do have a phone in my home, but it does not look anything like this much bigger.
0: They are much different now than they used to be. In fact, some of these phones right now are smaller than the size of your palm. What's in your home?
1: Oh, it's a much larger one. It's on the wall, and I have to have the operator connect us, and you can't call everywhere, of course, but it is very handy to have.
0: I think that in our time, you would enjoy the way that we use these now because I know that you've done a lot of traveling in your time, some very unsuccessful and and other very successfully, but you can just call anybody at any place in the world at any time at almost no cost.
1: That is amazing because sending cables is quite expensive. That's how we communicate mostly around the world.
0: There is a significant moment in your life that, of course, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about, that people are going to want to hear about first from you. And it is about the sinking of the Titanic. And I guess what I'm wondering is, how did you even end up on that ship?
1: Oh, I hadn't intended to be on it, but I was traveling with my daughter, Helen, and we had first gone to Egypt with the John Jacob Astor and his new wife, Madeline. And we were traveling around there and then on to Paris. And I got a cable saying that my newly born grandchild, my, my son, Larry's son, was very ill. And so I sought passage on the first ship back to the United States, and that happened to be the Titanic.
0: So had something not happened to your grandchild, you would have never been on that ship, at least not on that particular voyage.
1: No, not at that time. I had planned to do much more touring around Europe before returning to the United States. My daughter, Helen, though, she was studying in Paris at Sorbonne, and Some of her friends wanted her to come to London for them during the season, so she decided not to get on the Titanic with me but to continue on to London, and I was so very thankful that decision was made, and she was not with me.
0: Oh, that was close. So were you, as far as family, were you the only person in your family that was on the ship?
1: Yes, I was, yes. I had some friends that were on there, Emma Bucknell and... Dr. Arthur Brew, they boarded at Cherbourg, the same place I did.
0: So tell me a little bit about what that was like getting on the Titanic. Tell me about what happened when you first got on the ship. That's an adventure in itself, obviously. What did that look like?
1: We took a train from Paris, and it was late coming from Liverpool, and we ended up having to stand outside on the dock waiting for about an hour before we were able to get on the ship, and Emma kept saying that, something was going to happen. She just had this dreadful feeling. And of course, we said it was just the anxiety of having to travel and going back to her family that it's always very stressful to do this. So we got on the tender and got out to the ship. And as I said, it was cold, but not that cold. And the usual day on the Titanic, I would get up and take a brisk walk around the ship. I would go to the gym and I would pummel with the hanging bag, and I would read a lot and, of course, interact with my friends and have dinner with them and have tea in the afternoon, and I enjoyed it. It was a very wonderful time, until the last day, of course. How many days were you on the ship? I boarded on April 10th there in Cherbourg, and it was on the 14th, just before midnight, when it struck the iceberg.
0: So you're having the time of your life. You're thinking that this ship has got to be just a marvel. And then there is the first announcement. Or, or what happened that led you to believe that something was wrong?
1: The day had been just like any other day, except it was Sabbath day. And Captain Smith, he had led the worship service. We He read from the Common Book of Prayers. And again, just a typical day. I had my lunch at the Veranda Cafe did some more walking. It was very cold, though, so you didn't spend much time outside. And I had gone to dinner that night and was lying in bed reading. And just before midnight, there was a bump. And I was thrown out of my bed. And I found myself on the floor. I had no idea what had happened, but I got back in bed and continued reading And then I heard voices out in the hallway, so I peeked out and I saw people out there talking, but they didn't seem like anything was amiss. They were chatting very animatedly, so I went back to bed and started reading again. And then I heard more commotion and my curtains moved a little bit. And I looked out and I saw this man and he would, looked like he was gasping for air, and his eyes were bulging. and he said, get your life preserver. So I thought I'd better find out what was going on. And I put on some clothes, and I, I put on quite a few clothes. I put on seven pairs of socks. I grabbed a sable that I wrapped around my shoulders, a silk hood over my head, a capote, and I stuck a little talisman that i had got in Egypt in my pocket. It was turquoise. And... I put that in a pouch, which I put under my clothes and grabbed a blanket. And I went out and went up on deck to see what was happening. And I went over on one side of the ship and saw some people. And I started encouraging it because we just thought this was a drill. We thought that people would be getting in a lifeboat and they would be back in no amount of time. So people did not want to get into the lifeboat because they thought, why bother? They thought it was safer on the ship. I started to realize that it was more than that. So I was encouraging the women because on the side that I was in, they were saying women and children to get in. And and so I was encouraging some of them that wanted to go back and get their valuables. I said, no, there's no time. You need to get in now. And I, I thought, I'll go see what's happening on the other side. And just as I started to cross, two men came from behind me and lifted me by my elbows and threw me four feet down into the lifeboat. So I really didn't have much choice in the matter.
0: They picked you up and just threw you in?
1: Yes, they did. So I was in the lifeboat and I looked and I only saw one man in there. And that was Robert Hitchens, a very craven creature. He was the quartermaster and the rest appeared to be women. Then they had Major Puchin, They were yelling for men that we needed men in our lifeboat and so he said that he was a seaman and he was able to swing out because at that point the lifeboat was canting away from the ship and he was able to manage to get into our lifeboat and so as far as i knew there were only two men they threw another little boy in and That poor boy, we found out later he had actually broken one of his arms.
0: So when you say that they are throwing people in, they actually threw you in and they threw this boy in where he hit the boat and broke a bone. I mean, they literally are throwing people.
1: I wouldn't say they threw many people in. Most people (laughs) entered by choice. And many people, of course, wanted to go in, husbands especially with their wives, but they were denied that entry, at least in the side of the boat that I was on.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. Keep going. So how many people are in the boat now?
1: Oh, I think there were 27 in all, but they started lowering us. And as they did, I noticed that there was this big gash in the side of the boat. And I took my oar and I held it so that we didn't bash into the ship as they were lowering us. And it was obvious, that there had been no practice. There was not one drill yet, as generally you would think there would be. And so I I held it so our lifeboat didn't crash into the ship as the water was gushing out of this gash. And teetering back and forth, we thought we were going to be spilled into the ocean, and finally we made it down and splashed in. And I looked up, and I could see Captain Smith He was standing there, and I had been on ships other times that he was the captain, so I, I knew who he was, but he had this venerable white hair, and he held himself very uprightly. But I could hear him saying that we should stay together and to row toward the light to make sure we got away from the ship. And so we started rowing away. And immediately, this Hitchens, he started saying that We were going to be sucked under either by the ship going down or for some unknown reason that none of us were going to survive. He just kept going on and on like this about how we were all doomed. And he was just misery, the craven creature.
0: What a terrible person to be leading the expedition to get away from the boat.
1: Yes, you can say that again. Yes, he was just doom and gloom the entire time. But he had his hand on the rudder. So we didn't have much choice. He at first said that we just needed to go out and stop. And, he, oh, he heard the captain. The captain said, come back. And we said, you're crazy. The captains, we're too far away to hear the captain. And so we started rolling in. And, of course, he wouldn't allow anybody else to man the rudder, even though he complained all the time of being cold. I said, But you would just get your hands on one of the oars and start rowing, it would warm you up. But of course, he would not do that. He wouldn't give it up. So we rowed away and we could hear the music playing. And then we heard it slowly fading. We heard gunshots at times. We were told later that it was shooting to keep some of the passengers off the boats or other people said that it was the boilers exploding. But then came the moment. We heard this big loud noise the The boat started tilting upright and everything started crashing down from one side of the ship to the other. And the people were screaming and each of us on our lifeboat, we were calling out the name of a loved one. And I was so thankful that my Helen was not there. I tried to look away, but I couldn't. My eyes were glued to that ship as it disappeared under the ocean. The surface, it, it, it foamed up like giant arms spread out around that ship as it disappeared out of sight. And we could hear the people. They were crying out, and many on our boat said, We have to go back. We have to rescue these people, but Hitchens would not turn. He said our boat would be swamped, and we would all die. And they were dead already, as good as dead. So that He wouldn't allow us to go back. It was the most horrible thing I have ever experienced.
0: So you're in the boat right now. Hitchens will not turn back. And you can hear people screaming for help. Is that right?
1: For a while. And then their voices all faded, too. And we knew they were gone.
0: So what happened next? Did somebody convince him to turn around and look for survivors? Or did you wait? No,
1: he wouldn't. We just continued on. We kept rowing. And I kept encouraging the other women to row, too, because that was the only way to keep warm. I had given away six of my seven pairs of socks to other people. We rowed, and Hitchens made a stop because we saw other boats, and he had them come and latch up to us. And, of course, we were getting cold, and there was a stoker on one of the other ones. He was in his, it looked like pajamas. He didn't have much on, just a sweater, and he came over and got in our lifeboat since we needed men there and I took my table off and I wrapped it from his waist down around his legs to try to warm him up. And I was trying to get him to let us move again, so that we could be warm. And Hitchens swore at me. He said that I needed to learn my place, that he was in charge and the Stoker he started telling him that was no way to treat a lady, and I threatened to to throw Hitchens overboard. And as I approached him, they held me back. Or
0: I would have. So what did it look like at night? So here you are, there's a handful of boats. Everybody's doing the best they can to stay warm. Everybody's scared to death, obviously. What what does it look like? Did it it get quiet then? Was the night clear where you could see stars?
1: Yes, we could see the stars shining and we could see a reflection off of them of the icebergs and smell them all around us. They put out this musty smell. And yes, it was very frightening, especially since Hitchens kept saying that there was no food, no water in our lifeboat, that we were going to die. As I said, he was a despicable creature.
0: Terrible. You probably only was- needed a couple of days and then you would have been eating him because that would have been the only value he could have provided.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a novel thought. I hadn't <laughs> thought of that before. <laughs> so now, as you're sitting in the
0: boat and everybody's cold and you're sharing your socks, boy, I can't believe you had the foresight to put all these pairs of socks on. How full was the boat? How much space was in the boat still?
1: There was quite a lot of lot of space in our boat. We could have fit many more people in there. Could you have doubled what was in there? Most likely, yes.
0: What a shame.
1: In order to start rolling again we had to cut the ties between the boats. We could not row together. So that was one of the things he was trying to prevent happening. He didn't want that to happen. So that's one reason I was in this argument with him. We had to do it in order to keep warm. We would have all frozen if we had just sat there with the wind howling around us and the cold creeping into us. We had frost on us. I had frostbite back when I lived in Leadville, but no, This was as cold as then, if not colder.
0: So now you're in the boat and you're rowing. And there's probably after this, I guess maybe there's this quiet calm where people don't know what to do. So what do you do next? Does Hitchens, does he start showing some leadership qualities? Does somebody stand up and say, let's do this? What happens over the next several hours?
1: Someone saw a light and they thought it it was another ship. And Hitchens says, oh, no. There's no ships coming here. That if if they are, they're just here to pick up the stiffs. They're not going to rescue us. And someone said, oh, it's the Olympic, because they thought it was going to be passing by soon. Well, actually, the Olympic didn't pass by for a couple more days. It was not the Olympic. And we realized when a man's voice spoke up and said, it's the Carpathia. She's a good ship. We did have another man here on board, which... Frederick Fleet, The Lookout. He had put a blanket over his head to keep warm, and people assumed it was a woman. But we actually did have another man on our boat with us. And he said, she's here to rescue us. I know she's a good ship. So we could see other lifeboats by this time, and they were approaching the Carpathia. It took it to quite a while. It was a number of miles still away. And by the time we got there... The sea, which had been very glassy and still, had begun to whip up and was very rocky and waves were crashing around. So we had a very difficult time as we approached the Carpathia. In order to to get up to it, they lowered ropes down with a seat and they made a, a makeshift Jacob's Ladder on it. And one by one, they hauled us up onto the ship and immediately gave us stimulants and coffee and warm clothes and blankets. I cannot say enough good things about Captain Rostrand and the people there on board the Carpathia. The ship was headed to the Mediterranean, so it was full of food, and it only had about half occupancy. Fortunately for us, meant there was a lot of food and there was space to fit us in. Now, there weren't enough rooms for everybody, but between the restaurants and the other public spaces on board, a place was found for everyone.
0: I can't imagine anybody was even concerned about whether or not they had a room. They just wanted to get out of the boat and get out of the water. Anything to not be floating in that water.
1: One of those people who wanted to make sure that they had a very private cabin was Bruce Ismay the managing director of the White Star Line that owned the Titanic. He wanted his own cabin once he got on the Carpathia. He was not one of those obviously believed in women and children only, or even first. He made his way on one of those collapsible lifeboats. So when he was rescued onto the Carpathia, he immediately took refuge in one of the cabins and refused to come out. He was such a coward.
0: Oh, this guy's fantastic. I can't even imagine that. He's the one that owned the Titanic, and he gets off it, and he's like, i got to have my own room.
1: And I hold him personally responsible, him and Captain Smith, for what happened. The the Titanic should no more run into an iceberg than the Brown Palace Hotel in Denver, run into Pike's Peak. It was so unnecessary and avoidable. He was wanting to get to a dinner party in New York City, so he was pushing the limits and trying to set a speed record to get there in time.
0: So what about the captain? Bruce Ismay was trying to set this speed record, which was a mistake. He shouldn't be in a rush with people's lives. So when you say you blame it on the captain, how is it the captain's fault if he's just following orders?
1: Because he shouldn't have followed his orders. He knew what could happen. He knew that there were icebergs all around. He had been warned. Many times he had been warned. He should have known better rather than listening to someone who doesn't have nearly the navigational experience as you do.
0: So now you're on the Carpathia and you guys get some food and and you warm up. What happens next?
1: I started organizing. That's what I do best, organizing and fundraising. So I started making a list of everybody that was rescued from all the classes, where they were from, where they were going, if they had anybody there to vouch for them, to take care of them once they made it to the United States. And I started raising funds because so many of these rescued people were women, women who had lost their husbands. They had lost their support. They lost every single thing they owned many of their children were lost as well. They had to start over again without a breadwinner. And so I was trying to raise funds in order for them to be able to survive in the new world. Madeline Astor, the widow now of John Jacob Astor, contributed greatly to that fund. And I raised $10,000 before we reached New York City, $2,000 from Madeline. And There were some women, though, who I encountered out on the deck, and I told them I hadn't seen their name on the list of the contributors. And they said, once we get to New York City, we will be going on our way. We'll be staying in our favorite hotel. You'll be at yours at the Ritz-Carlton. Why worry about these women? Well, I started making a list and the amount contributed and posting it on the Grand Staircase as well as a list of those who had not contributed yet. It wasn't long until those women's names were added to the list of those who had contributed.
0: You were making a naughty and nice list.
1: (laughs) I guess you could call it that. But I felt so badly for these women. They had nothing. I had so much, and so did these ladies. We weren't going to be destitute. I thought it was our Christian duty to help them out.
0: Right. Madeline Astor is going to be just fine as well as you. I was reading about this, and there is documentation that you went out of your way to make sure that the survivors for the ship were taken care of, and they had a place to go, and they got support. And now I see exactly what you're saying with all of the men gone. And this is a time where women can't vote yet. And there are some limitations that make a woman trying to make her own way more difficult, and they would need that support. It's surprising that the well, other women, it means, wouldn't be all over this like you are.
1: Let me say two things to that. First, Madeline Astor was not all right. She was pregnant. She had lost her husband. That is not all right. Yeah. She was devastated. So out of the goodness of her heart, she gave, even though she was grieving greatly. As far as the women not being able to make it in the new world, many of these women were immigrants. I'd say the vast majority of them were immigrants that were in need. Many did not even speak English. Now, I speak many languages, and that was one reason why I was so invaluable on the Titanic as well as on the Carpathia, because I could speak to many of them in their own languages and comfort them. And that was another thing. Some of them the doctors, the people on board said, these women will be fine. Just give them some place to, to stay. Give them a blanket. Don't worry about them. And I said, no, they're not all right. Emotionally, mentally, these women are having breakdowns. We have to listen to them. So I arranged for times where they could come to us there in the restaurant. We set it aside for them to come in and they could tell us what their concerns were and we could listen to them. And they felt relieved just because they knew somebody cared that they were being listened to. Sometimes that was all that was needed. Yes, when we made it to New York City, I stayed on the ship, making sure that every single passenger had somewhere to go, whether it was to an embassy, to a family, to a friend, and I documented where everybody went. So I was the last survivor to leave that ship. I wanted to make sure that I did my job, and I did it to the effect I was named chairman of the Survivors Committee, and I still hold that position. and I take it very seriously.
0: I can't even imagine what it would have been like for all of these people had they not had somebody like you looking out for them. And yet you mentioned that you were on the Survivors Council or the head of the Survivors Council. And I'm wondering if in a situation like this, sometimes people deal with survivor's guilt. All of these people had passed and you were fortunate enough to be thrown into one of these boats. Do you have some of those feelings, some of that survivor's guilt? Is that something you've you've struggled with?
1: No, not really, but there were de- definitely some of the men that were on the Carpathia. Remember I told you about those two men that picked me up and they threw me into the lifeboat number six? I encountered them one day near the restaurant on the Carpathia, and they both looked at me very sheepishly. And I found out who they were, and I thanked them profusely for saving my life. They were both buyers at, at Gimbal's department store. And they said that they were trying not to be seen because they felt, as you said, very guilty that they were among the living when many men were not. And that seemed to be the general feeling of most all of the men that survived, except with Ismay, of course. But on the Titanic and the Carpathia, I simply did my duty as I saw it. I I knew that I was healthy and strong. I'm sure there's nothing I did throughout the whole affair that anyone else wouldn't have done. Now that I did help some, I am thankful. My only regret is that I could not have assisted more. I truly wish I could have done more.
0: I think you definitely did do your part before and after. One thing that I'm thinking about is you have this reputation for standing up for women, whether it has to do with this terrible incident on the Titanic or women's right to vote. And back in the early days, how you're standing up for minors in Leadville and children. I mean, it seems like you're always standing up. I'm
1: sorry? And also Ludlow. What's Ludlow? Ludlow was where the workers were trying to, it was a, a mine, and they were trying to organize to have minimum wage and maximum work hours and to have collective bargaining, things that you would think that they should have. Instead, they were thrown out of their company homes. I was called in to mitigate this in Ludlow, Colorado. They had been, as I found out, working six to seven days a week, 12 to 15 hours a day in various dangerous and unhealthy conditions. So they were thrown out of their company homes when they went on strike. And there were agents that were hired by the coal mining owners. And they surrounded them in this camp, and they started firing on them. There were six miners who were killed, and then there was a fire that broke out. And in that, two women and 11 children were killed. One of my friends, John Rockefeller, was owner of this mine. So on behalf of the miners, and I had gone there with an open mind. But as I saw and heard what they had experienced, I went to John Rockefeller. Rockefeller. And I told him that he needed to put into practice what he had been teaching his Sunday school class. And that was that we are our brother's keeper. He needed to, to live up to what he was preaching.
0: When you say John Rockefeller is one of your friends, is he the, the richest person in the world at this time?
1: I'm not really sure about that.
0: But he is, but ex- he is
1: definitely one of the wealthiest. Yes
0: a person that can attain the kind of wealth that that he has. I am surprised that he can be driven off of his course in any way. Did he listen to you? Did he talk to you
1: as a friend? Minor changes were made, but not nearly what should have been done.
0: Mrs. Brown, you know how rich people get. Not all rich people, but some rich people. They get money and they think, I'm taken care of. And so maybe I don't have to worry about everything else. And it doesn't seem like you ever developed that disease of caring for yourself first and forgetting your fellow man. But why is this so important to you? You have everything that you need. Why is it so important to you that your time has to be spent in these causes?
1: Probably because of how I was raised. My parents were Irish immigrants, and we had nothing. My father was a day laborer for the gas works there, and hannibal missouri where i was born in that little tiny house up on the hill and even though we didn't have a lot there was love in our house and my parents held a lot of belief in education so i was able to attend school until i was 13 and then i went to work in the tobacco factory stripping the leaves so i've always felt that my parents believed in hard work in taking care of your fellow man. My parents were involved in the abolition movement. And so I just believed that I was supposed to give back. And when we became quite wealthy, I mean, I had married a poor man, but when he struck gold in that silver mine, we became millionaires within the year. So I had been a taker, and now I felt I needed to be a giver as well. But even before that, I was in the soup kitchens. When money was no longer based on silver, there was quite a depression in Leadville. The silver mines were no longer worth what they had been. And there were many miners out of work, a lot of poverty, depression. So I helped out by being in the soup kitchens. And then, of course, after we made our money and we moved to Denver, I helped form the women's club there. I helped get public toilets, libraries. I did all sorts of things in Denver to help people out. I believe that was what I was supposed to do, that I had been given the money for a reason, not just to spend it, which I did, and I did quite happily traveling and... (laughs) As you should have. Taking classes and becoming very proficient in classical guitar and in yodeling and studying literature and drama, and I spent my money well.
0: You certainly have a lot of interest. I want to come back to Leadville in in, in a moment here because I can see where this comes from now. This is very clear because you said your parents were Irish immigrants. And is it true that one of them was involved in the Underground Railroad directly?
1: My father had some hand in it, but he was very quiet and didn't talk a lot about that. I believe it was my mother's family was involved in some of the the troubles that they were having in ireland too before they emigrated so i come from the family of activists
0: yeah i read that your mother was involved with the irish resistance yes yeah that makes a lot of sense that you would then grow up seeing them looking for a cause and then go look for to find your own cause of course you took a different approach it sounds like they maybe had a couple of causes and you decided that you were just going to fix everything and uh, <laughs> which is fantastic while you were learning to play the guitar and yodel and everything yeah. else
1: one of the things that i am very good at is fundraising so i was able to help a lot of causes simply by raising the funds i'm a good organizer and one of the things was the carnival of nations festival that i did to help raise funds for the Immaculate Conception Cathedral in in Denver. And so I organized this. This was just two years after the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition in St. Louis. So I thought I'd do something similar. So I invited the Chinese, the Indians, the Mexicans, the Italians, the Negroes, the Irish, and of course the people they came, except for of course that elite group in Denver society to Sacred 36. The Denver 400 came, but the Sacred 36, Mrs. Crawford Hill's elite, they did not attend. And they complained because they said that the Chinese should not be there. And I said, well, after all, they built the railroad, so of course they should come. And then they complained about the Indians. This was when Denver thought that the only good Indian was a dead Indian. But yet it got a lot of publicity. Maybe bad, but any. Publicity is good. And I raised a lot of funds. So the next year when I put on the Catholic Fair, I had to do something even better. So this time I invited the Jews.
0: Is there anybody you don't like?
1: I don't like people who take advantage of other people, who think that they are better than them, and they cheat, and they swindle, and they mistreat others.
0: doesn't really matter Um, if they're black or white or Jews. If they mistreat people, those are the people that you don't like.
1: You got it. What about the wealthy? There are good wealthy people like Alva Vanderbilt Belmont. She has the house there in Newport. And of course I have a a little cottage, a 46 room cottage in Newport. And together she and I and a few others, we planned the convention for great women in her home in Marblehead. And we helped women to organize in the suffrage movement. And we had these meetings. She was definitely using her wealth for a good cause. So it's no, it's not all of the wealthy that are like that.
0: I actually want to talk about Denver for a minute. I think you just said either you had or she had a
1: 46 room cottage. Did you say that? Oh, I'm sorry. 43 rooms. Oh, okay,
0: (laughs) But it's just a little cottage, right? With 43 rooms, right? Yes. Okay. all right. Let's back up for a minute. I need to get clear on what the Sacred 36 is. I'm a little confused on that. What is that?
1: Mrs. Crawford Hill believed that she was in charge of all the elite goings-on, that she was upper crust of society. So everybody had to meet a certain standard in order to be included in this high society. And because I was a little too Irish and a little too Catholic and a little bit too new to Denver, I was not accepted, but I was very much in with the 400, very active in society. there, just not in her snobby little group. And if he was not much different than I was, she was a southerner who had emigrated to Denver. So she wasn't exactly one of those uh, original people either.
0: I think in your time you would have been considered new money. Are you saying would she have been considered new money, too?
1: Yes, hers was just a little bit older than mine, but not that much.
0: And she thought that made her better.
1: Yes. And after the Titanic, she actually hosted a dinner party for me. So I guess I finally met her standard.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure it was a hot topic of conversation, and she probably wanted to be a part of that. Nobody wants to not be around the person with the reputation that you have of trying to save more people and everything that you did.
1: It's wanted of the attention. You're right.
0: Yeah, maybe. Tell me about Denver. You were in Leadville, Colorado first, and then you moved to Denver. Tell me about Denver, because in our time, Denver is a wonderful place to live. Beautiful mountains, growing city, but that is not what Denver looked like when you moved there. Is that correct?
1: Let me go back a little bit to Leadville and how I got to Denver. I mentioned earlier how my husband... J.J. had struck gold in this silver mine. When I first met him, it was at a a Catholic church picnic. I had moved from my hometown of Hannibal to, to Leadville to seek gold, the kind as in a wedding band. I was looking for a very rich husband. But I met J.J. at this picnic and he fell madly in love with me, but he was just a foreman at the mining company and i decided was i going to hold out to get a rich husband or was i going to marry someone i loved even though he had no money and i decided to marry jj because i was in love with him and within a few years we added two children to our household i guess we were married about seven years and jj had been studying on the side all these geology books and engineering and he came up with this idea of using hay bales, straw bales, and timbers, a way to support the mine roof so there were not caves so you could get in deeper. And they allowed him to try this method on the Little Johnny Mine. It was very successful. And they struck gold. So the company was so happy with him that they gave him 12000 500 shares in the company, which was a considerable chunk of what the company had. And within a year, we were multimillionaires. So that enabled us to have the funds then to move to Denver. So we bought a house. We call it the House of Lions because of the two big concrete lines that sit out front in Pennsylvania. And also a VOCA, a 400-acre farm, where... My husband, JJ, he liked to plant all these fruit trees, and he had his chicken village, and I would hold fundraisers there, like for Judge Ben Lindsay, and take people out on horseback rides, throw great parties for the children. It was a wonderful time in my life, and I had always wanted to give my father a respite. Some place that he could put his feet up. So he was able and my mother to move in with us there. And I was finally able to give that to him to have an easy way of life because they had worked so hard. I believe they deserve that. And those were some of the best years of my life. My my father and JJ would sit there in front of the fire and tell stories and the children would listen. And it was a wonderful time. It seems like you and
0: JJ had a good relationship. Here you go looking for a man who is wealthy and you find uh, a man that you love instead that just ends up being wealthy. It sounds like
1: he was. I, I should tell you, we have been separated now for about 13 years.
0: What an incredible person. I mean, that's how life is supposed to be lived. We all have challenges, but are they more difficult than being on a sinking ship in the middle of the freezing ocean? And yet, she doesn't miss a beat. Immediately, she transforms into the organizer fundraiser to make sure that everyone of less means is taken care of. In the next episode, we'll talk about her husband, JJ, and the indiscretion that might have played a role in the ending of their marriage. We'll talk about Margaret leading the way for the creation of juvenile courts so that children were not serving time with murderers after stealing a loaf of bread. And we'll talk about what her plans are for the future. I'm glad you're enjoying this podcast, and if you haven't yet, subscribe now, and we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast with part two of the unsinkable Margaret Brown.